0: One of the things that you probably, some of you at least, have run into in this tradition is uh, sometimes a healthy debate, sometimes a kerfuffle, which is a word I learned from Kamala. I think I heard you say that once. (laughs) I actually looked it up today. It's just uh, an unnecessary um, debate or controversy, and. so sometimes we hear about this confusion or this disagreement about samadhi, about uh, what often gets translated as concentration, but maybe more appropriately, it just is the stability of the mind or the steadiness of the mind, or another translation i like is unification of the mind, or a mind that is currently not afflicted by the hindrances, not Getting pushed around by wanting, not getting pushed around by aversion, too little, too much energy, sleepiness or restlessness, not getting pushed around by doubt. And uh, the controversy, um, which ultimately in my mind isn't a controversy, but just to prepare yourselves because you might run into people who have a strong view about samadhi and where, how it should arise, what somebody, or what someone should do with their minds to support the arising of samadhi, this steadiness of mind. So, some people, or sometimes, there's this strong emphasis on using a primary object, directing our attention to the primary object, and due to that the sort of force of the intention, the purity of the intention, the persistence of the intention to be with the object, then in a sense, it doesn't, that continuity with the breath, let's say, is continuous, it's pure, it has a, enough force that nothing else, in a sense, can come into the mind because the mind is busy turning its attention being with the next in-breath, the next out-breath. And so in that way, the mind, that practice, it does suppress the hindrances. It suppresses other activity, right? You can't be planning your next vacation and have continuity of awareness with each in-breath, each out-breath. And then the other camp, I guess, is that... uh, this emphasis on samadhi that comes not from directing the attention to a particular object, meditation object, but allowing the knowing mind to know whatever's predominant. And that samadhi relies on wisdom. It's the wisdom that's not confused by the arising objects, whatever they might be, might be an emotion, might be an interesting sound, It might be pain in the knee. It might be a disturbing memory. But if the mind is established in right view, and so every arising object is understood as just being nature, just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions, the mind's not personalizing, not attaching, not resisting, not struggling, and because of that absence of reactivity, samadhi will arise. Now, my view (laughs) is that these are both really good skills to have. And it's not really a controversy at all. It's really about understanding the Buddha taught a spectrum of skills, like this teaching on samadhi, the teachings on samadhi really, um, when you look at the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, he's really teaching along the spectrum. When wisdom is strong, then it, it's probably, in most cases, makes sense not to be directing your attention anywhere, but just to allow whatever shows up as the predominant object in that moment's experience to allow it to be seen with wisdom. It's just this being known, right? And to allow the necessary samadhi, because there's no insight, there's no there 's no fruits of practice without Samadhi. Samadhi is really the proximate cause for the two main fruits of practice: getting a temporary space from the hindrances, so right now in the moment, the mind's not afflicted, not being pushed around, and developing insight and liberating insight that uproots the habit of suffering, uh, falling into the hole again and again, to reactivity again and again. So we need samadhi and it's just a question of what are we going to do to support the ongoing samadhi in the mind? And it makes so much sense to me that we should have skills all along that spectrum So I wanna talk about samadhi tonight and talk about the spectrum, the spectrum of skills, so that both in our formal retreat practice for the next several days, but also when you go home, you just have uh, have spent this time deepening the set of skills. I like to think about samadhi as the basic competence of the mind. I mean, really, It's not easy to be competent at anything without some degree of samadhi. I mean, we can do some things on automatic pilot. But in terms of being a human being that can adapt and adjust and respond in appropriate ways with our kids, with our families, with our work life, with aging, and all the things that come our way, you really need samadhi because otherwise we're pretty much meeting the moment with habit energy. And I don't know about you, but my habit energy is limited. (laughs) And in terms of actually leading to happiness, you know, sometimes maybe habit energy leads to happiness, but a lot of the time habit energy, you know, leads to getting tight and getting reactive and setting emotion suffering Here's a teaching from the Buddha. Just as an arrow smith shapes an arrow to perfection, so does the wise person shape the mind, which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable, and erratic. How good it is to reign the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing whenever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. And I know we don't, you know, in a way it's not even politically correct to talk about (coughs) harnessing the mind because it it sounds like rough and it sounds controlling. And rightfully so, we associate with our practice uh, more the opposite of just letting things be, right? That's a common (coughs) Dharma cliche. Just let things be, just allow Like even in the RAIN acronym that's so helpful, the A, you know, often we think of the word allow, just let things be. But although that's true, just to appreciate what a retraining that is to let things be. Because if we just let things be now, right, what's our predominant habit energy? To react, to resist, to control, to hate to think, if only, then I'll be happy. So we need to, uh, you know, and that's why we come here, that's why we're willing to submit to the schedule and to the instructions, is because on some level, maybe initially you didn't think so, but after you start paying attention, then we become pretty clear that this heart, this mind, it needs some training and to just let it act out the predominant habits, the habits that have the most momentum. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I've been finding, Kamala and I were actually joking about this earlier, about how uh, useful it is to have a lifestyle of teaching the Dharma because it's very protecting to come on retreat and lead retreats and to teach classes and, you know, to do the activities that we do keeps the mind out of trouble. And I don't know about you, but I find when I do have some time off, you know, I actually end up suffering a lot of that time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my mind pursuing things like reading the news a lot more than it needs to read the news and, you know, just eating more than I need to eat and basically getting into trouble in different ways. And uh, you know, it's really clear that the mind, uh, it needs something to do. A lot of people find this being parents. It's like, it's not even so much they wanted to be parents. I mean, they might eventually tell themselves, um, you know, a story about how good it is to raise kids, that the world needs wise children growing up to be wise adults. And there's, there's definitely some truth to that. But one of the things about having kids is there's some samadhi there, right? It's like the mind organizes itself around the task at hand, especially when the, the kid is an infant. It's like the mind is gathered. What does this child need now? And, and that activity, right, and um, not always... It's easy for me to talk because I have never had children. (laughs) But in my observation, you know, a lot of the times the person's actually generous. Like they're showing up for the child, not just because they have to, but because they love the child. They care about the child. They want, they care about the child's well-being. So the mind is in this, it's like gathered, it's collected around the task at hand. Sure, it may but it comes back, right? It keeps coming back. And generally, the attitude of the mind is often wholesome, generous, and kind, and patient, and awake, because we have to be careful. We want to make sure, you know, we're sort of reading the situation to see what actually helps and what doesn't help. So this is what our Dharma practice is. We have to... Um, the refuges that uh, Kamala talked about the first night understand what we've talked about the last couple of nights with understanding dukkha or suffering and understanding compassion. It's really understanding the proper ground for this gathering of the mind. It's really this compassion that Kamala was talking uh last night where because we understand the force of habit and uh, we want to, we're interested in avoiding the suffering that would otherwise come our way. So we gather the attention around this issue of suffering and the end of suffering. It gets our attention. And then to sort of stabilize the mind we learn this array of skill, like how to keep the mind steady, how to keep the mind from sliding into distractedness, into superficiality, into reactivity. How do we do that? This is what the Buddha said about the training. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. A well-directed mind creates more well-being than even the loving action of parents toward their children. (coughs) A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well-guarded and trained will bring one happiness. And Buddha has some pretty graphic images of a mind untrained, you know, a restless mind, enchanted mind, obsessive mind, and one of the more graphic images, and you, you might have even seen this in your life, is when a fish is taken out of the water and just put on dry land and how it struggles. And uh, that's a little bit how our mind is when we don't have something, you know, if we don't. And that's why we hand the mind, like, here, look at the news. So what we do with, you see parents do, doing it with the kids. You know, they hand them the... Um, the tablet, you know, with some game. Here, look at this. Or let's watch this video over here. And the thing is, it does work temporarily to hand our mind something to do. Oh, I get to go to have have my meal. Or there's a bird in the bush I can watch for a moment. You know, somebody's moving a lot in the hall. I can sort of have an opinion about that. or (laughs) Sort of like these little... But then when it gets quiet... And there's nothing to absorb into. And it's very interesting to see the mind. Like, it's, isn't it interesting how theoretically we like the idea of calm, we like the idea of a steady and equanimous mind, but we don't always choose that. You know, we often choose the drama and the reactivity and the excitement. I forget the quote now and I forget who said it, but it's something like uh, we're like children who, you know, love, who uh, aspire to happiness but love the causes for suffering. You know, we're, we're, we are enchanted with the, that which leads to agitation and just the drama of it. So a good definition for samadhi, this unification of mind, is a mind that is free of the forces, the habits that hinder the clarity of the mind. So, for example, wanting or craving distorts the clarity of the mind. Being aversive, being afraid, hating, it colors, distorts the mind. Buddha uses the image of boiling water that you can't see clearly through when there's anger in the mind. All of the hindrances have a distorting, disturbing, agitating effect in the mind. Doubt does, too little energy. He describes as a pond filled with algae. You know, it's hard to see clearly through that pond and restlessness being whipped up by the wind. So when our mind isn't disturbed, then there's a natural clarity. And then samadhi, in terms of our practice, can do what it's designed to do, see things as they are. Right? And there are a lot of other effects of samadhi. One of them is the mind feels good. You know, when the energy of the mind isn't being dissipated through our fixed views, our opinions, our reactions, our wanting, our wanting to push something away, the wondering about, like, what does this mean? When the mind isn't being dissipated, fragmented with all this <coughs> mental activity, then the mind is experienced in its non-fragmented state, its unified state, which is pleasant. In, I'm sure many of you have noticed what it feels like when the mind is unified, is gathered together, Because that state of mind isn't dull, it's actually quite bright, there's energy there, but that energy doesn't need to do anything. It's not being neurotically uh, driven to fix that, control that, understand this. It's in this potential state, so the mind's bright, but settled, clear and settled. And that contrast of that mind being stable and still, not neurotically doing, feeling the need, compulsive about doing something, then that, it's exactly that stability of mind that provides the contrast for when any habit, any neurotic habit arises. It's just so much more easy to see it for what it is. If my mind's really angry or reactive, or struggling, or wanting, and then something else happens, it's not so easy for that mind to see that new arising clearly for what it is. Because there's no contrast. So I've been reflecting on, you know, just in terms of learning to recognize it, and uh, some of the qualities that I experience and people generally experience when their mind settles into samadhi is what you might call an evenness of mind or that, that uh, non-disturbance of the mind where the hindrances are at bay. But another quality is the steadiness and the continuity. And then that mind really is able to comprehend right because it's it's steady it's has continuity that stability of mind and then it can read like in order to comprehend the way things are to discern we have to read we have to track the experience for a while for at least a few moments to see how it's unfolding because to understand really anything We have to see it as an unfolding process. That's what everything is, right? Everything, this is a process world we're living in. Everything unfolds lawfully, conditionally. So if we're gonna understand the nature of this conditional unfolding, the awareness has to be stable and continuous. It has to be even, clear, and continuous, steady moment by moment, so it can comprehend, oh, this is what's unfolding. This is how it is. This is how it all is affecting it all. (laughs) Right? Because that's partly what comes into view when we have that continuity of awareness. And this is what allows for the deeper insights, like we talk about seeing the impersonal nature, seeing how it isn't personal. Well, where, where that, insight, how that insight arises is the mind is basically more deeply experiencing, understanding the conditional nature, the process. And, you know, this process, it's not like a straight, this causes this, this causes this. There are innumerable causes, causes, and conditions playing themselves out, this great web. Of conditionality. But when the mind is really stable, steady and stable, continuous in this way, then it really can begin to see that conditional nature. And then it doesn't need the idea of me or mine, right, because that the understanding of what's unfolding here makes sense as a natural process. It doesn't need like it's happening to me or I'm doing this to me or you're doing this to me. You can just see the different arisings and how they condition the other, the next moment and the interplay of what's arising and passing in the mind. It sounds like a cliche, but sometimes I'm sure people here in the room have had this feeling where there's some samadhi, you're walking, or you're sitting, or you're just moving about in a transition from one thing to the next, and you just notice or sense how perfect it is, whatever it is, the wind blowing through the leaves, or the crunching of the stones as you're walking, not that your mind even uses those words, Oh, wow, this is perfect. But there's a sense, a direct and immediate sense that there's nothing missing, that the direct knowing of the experience is complete, that it doesn't need conceptual meaning, doesn't need the thinking mind to tell me that it's beautiful or that it's perfect or that this is exactly how it's supposed to be. So that fullness or that completeness of the experience is part of this insight where the mind is discerning the conditional process nature i keep remembering this simple but beautiful phrase from sylvia borstein one of the senior teachers western teachers one of the founders of spirit rock and outside of san francisco i think i can get it right let's see um she says something like, everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. Right? So that's, that's part of what this continuity of awareness that we get from samadhi reveals, that everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. It doesn't mean that it's a pleasant experience. We could have that insight, that understanding, even if we have a lot of knee pain and there's still 30 minutes to go in the sit. And we're all the way in the front of the room. So there's no way to get out. (laughs) Remember, you can stretch your limb out or stand. So um, there's another, one more aspect of samadhi that I think is important. I mentioned it briefly earlier, but it's really important to remind us that samadhi is pleasant. There's a pleasantness to this, gathered, collected state of mind. And it has an important function. The, it's a, in a way, it's a psychological healing. Because when, you know how this is, when we have one moment of pain after another, you know, the mind starts to get brittle after a while. And uh, thin. <laughs> and vulnerable, to reactivity, you know, and greed, anger, and delusion start looking better and better. <laughs> like, as if they make sense to, like, go get a cup of tea and put a lot of honey in it, or, you know, go write a note complaining about something, or it just makes sense when we've, the mind's, been afflicted by pain, by pain, by pain, by pain, by pain. So, to the degree that we're able to um, come back to this, really, it's kind of our birthright. Every mind is capable of finding samadhi, and it's so refreshing that the pleasantness, in a way, we we remember that there's something here and now that's trustworthy. It's a kind of beauty that we don't have to be afraid of. You know, sometimes we, like even Cloud Mountain, we can feel quite moved by the, the beauty of the place and the simplicity and how well run it is. And you know, it's been happening now for over 30 years and just that it exists. And that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty safe um, place for that kind of appreciative joy, happiness to arise. But much more so when we see something beautiful arise in our own heart and mind, like seeing its capacity to settle, to unify, to gather in the present moment, and, uh, you know, just appreciating the clarity of that. So that wholesome appreciation is experienced as a kind of joy. And the stronger that joy, and then later maturing into a sense of ease, contentedness, the stronger those qualities are. You see, it gives us a lot of immunity from aversion and craving. Because when we're feeling really good, It doesn't matter if somebody or our own mind dangles something shiny in front of us. We're just not that needy when there's this interconnected, uh, contentedness, right? In the same way, if we have no inner uh, contentment and somebody dangles something like, you know, their M&Ms at the dining hall, it's like we become very needy of them. Like, I need something you know, I need some sunshine or I need something sweet or I need to lie down. or So this is the, the wonderful thing about samadhi is that the pleasantness of samadhi creates this fortitude in the mind and body and resilience and stick to right? It really allows the mind to be persistent. I remember... I was a pretty serious meditator um, already back in the mid-80s when I heard about the annual three-month retreat at IMS. I had been reading some of Joseph Goldstein's books and Jack Kornfield's books and I knew a few people. And I had this very dismissive attitude because I realized how difficult it was for me to just to do my daily sit. And... Uh, and to go on retreat, you know. And I thought, three months. And I, was, I had this sort of dismissive attitude that they must just be practicing, uh, like, being callous. Like, somehow, learning to sit there that many days in a row, they must have discovered a way not to feel what they're feeling. <laughs> How else could they do it? And uh, so... But, but uh, what I didn't understand so well is the power that comes with samadhi to be able to stay right in the middle, whatever comes. And it doesn't mean that it's always roses and you know pleasant things coming and going. That stability, that resilience allows us to be right in the middle of pain. In fact, when the attitude is right, wise, the view is wise, pain is actually a pretty good object to develop samadhi with because it gets our attention, right? It's it's relatively easy for the attention to notice, oh, this is unpleasant, this is unpleasant. And if the mind has enough wisdom to not immediately think that it would be skillful to be averse or afraid of the unpleasantness, but actually instead can be interested, then the mind can really gather pretty quickly. In the same way that if there's something interesting. That's why sometimes people have this, hit the sweet spot in their first retreat, because everything's new, the teachings are new, the setting is new, the nice energy of the community is new. They just follow the instructions, And they can get this sort of, have a nice sit or a couple nice sits. And the mind really settles down, becomes very clear, maybe really peaceful, really pleasant in some ways. And uh, part of what allowed the mind to gather was that the newness of it, right? If, If a mountain lion started to hang out, you know, and we had a safe perch, <laughs> you know, we, our mind would be pretty gathered sitting there, you know, observing the mountain lion, doing what, hopefully not stalking anybody, right? So there are things that naturally will gather the mind. Now, how about the breath or walking? So this is the, the real trick and practice is to really get a sense of that spectrum where at this end of the spectrum, we use that skill of directing the attention to a primary object because uh, if we, there's a sense that if we just let the awareness open to all objects that are coming and going, we're just going to get lost in thought or there's something pretty seductive coming up, maybe a painful memory or maybe some uneasy emotion or uneasy sensation in the body, unpleasant sensation in the body, and we're afraid we just tighten up around it, react in a habitual way. So we're going to instead, like these would be some reasons why instead, we're going to direct the attention to a primary object like the rising and falling of the abdomen. And this is why often at the beginning of a retreat, even a retreat that is um, oriented toward more of the open attention or choiceless awareness end of the spectrum, they might, in their early days, use an anchor for the attention just so that the mind remembers, oh, it's possible this gathering of the energies of the mind and the stabilizing of the mind and having moments of clarity where it's just breathing in being known or just breathing out being known, just the rising expansion that actual, since those actual sensations of the movement of the abdominal wall as it expands out and that since those sensations of movement as it falls back in, contracts. (coughs) Then the mind sort of regains its confidence, regains clarity. And then with that stability, right, then you see how the instructions have already begun to change. Then we're encouraged that, well, you don't need to hold tight to the primary object. If something arises and basically says, I'm the predominant object now, (laughs) look at me, You know, it might be a disturbing sound in the meditation hall. It might be some other sensations in the body that, for whatever reason, are very strong, asking for attention, so to speak, or whatever it might be, painful memory, beautiful memory. Then we practice, so we're not losing the continuity. And with practice, we don't even have to lose any of the samadhi, any of the clarity, any of the stability of mind. The real key to that is not being confused by the new object. Now this is being known. Now this is what's being known. Well, can this be okay? Often what confuses the mind is it doesn't know what to do or it gets confused by the feeling tone. That's there with with the experience. The Buddha said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplate fading away, letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in the world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. So the real heart of strengthening and sustaining samadhi, this beautiful balance of mind, is, especially with open attention practice, is not to be dismissive of what's being felt, but to actually clearly recognize what's being felt, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of the thought, or the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the sensation, or the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the sound, or neutrality, of course, too. It's uh, so when an object arises, it always has that a, a feeling tone associated with it. So our practice is to see things as they are. So that means we also are aware it feels like this. And we're not, we practice not being confused by the feeling. Well, can it be okay that it feels like this? But that's the allowing and being intimate with the feeling. When we remember the RAIN acronym, Recognizing the object means also recognizing it has a feeling tone. It feels like something. It feels like this. Well, can that be okay? Can we allow it? Can we be interested, intimate, and understand without attachment, the end non-attachment, that it's just nature. It's just what it is. Sometimes it feels like this. Sometimes it feels otherwise. But right now it feels like this. Can that be okay? And this is how the samadhi can be sustained as different objects come and go. Painful objects, pleasant objects, and a lot of neutral objects too. Because we tend to be dismissive of neutral objects. That's why walking practice and uh, using the breath from time to time or just more generally the experience of embodiment, because often these are relatively neutral experiences, right? Don't you find it hard to sustain an authentic connection with the walking from the beginning of your walking lane all the way to the end? Especially like 12, 13 minutes into, into your walking period, right? It's hard because the mind is not in the habit of being intimate intimate and interested with what's neutral. It's in the habit of looking for something more interesting. (laughs) Even something disturbing or painful will do, but to connect and sustain with something neutral. But it's really useful because it's not that the walking's so special, but We're we're developing this samadhi, this quality of mind that can remain stable and clear and see things as they actually are, no matter the feeling tone associated with it. So when it's boring or ordinary or neutral, we want to be able to connect with those moments of life. And when it's painful, scary, hard to bear we want to connect with those moments of life. And when it's really pleasant and joyful and uplifting, we want to connect with those moments of life too. Because we want this continuity of awareness through the whole life, you know, as long as we're awake all day long. That's when insights really begin to, uh, to arise. We really start to see things with that continuity of awareness. One image that's uh, in the tradition that I find really useful uh, really points to how wisdom and samadhi work together, the stability of mind and having insight, seeing what the mind hasn't seen before, waking up. They really work together. And the image that's used in the tradition is a honed and heavy axe. And you can actually, there's a, a nice little book written by Ajahn he's a Western Buddhist monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition, somebody that Kamala has led retreats with, and he has a wonderful, beautiful monastery outside of Auckland in New Zealand um, where he's the abbot. But anyway, he a while back now, he wrote a little book. You can find it online and download it for free. And uh, it's called A Honed and Heavy Axe. And it's the central metaphor used in the Buddhist tradition that in order for the mind to do its job and to wake up, it needs both both the sharpness of wisdom or right view, it's just nature unfolding. These causes and conditions that we call this life, these experiences, it's just nature, right? So understanding that, that's the sharpness. Remembering right view, that's the sharpness. (coughs) But there's also, it's not just a honed axe, it's a honed and heavy axe. Right? It needs some oomph to it. And so as this, the way this metaphor works is, it's like if you had a razor blade, something really sharp, you wouldn't be able to cut down one of these trees. But it's really sharp, but still, you're not going to cut down a tree with a razor blade. If you had something with a lot of heft, like a sledgehammer, you still wouldn't be able to cut down one of these trees. But if you combine the two, if you had something that has a lot of weight and a lot of sharpness, well, then that instrument is going to be pretty functional. It's going to be able to do the job it's designed to do. And that's, uh, I think, a really good um, metaphor for samadhi is this capacity. It gives the wisdom in the mind some umph. We can have some sharpness, you know. We can read some books, hear a good Dharma talk, and really have a keen intellectual sense of how impersonal everything is, how everything is changing, everything's coming and going, how grasping is always suffering, any attachment is always suffering. And we can have a lot of confidence in that intellectual understanding and then we can go home and be a jerk and neurotic and set emotion suffering for ourselves and others so that kind of understanding it's useful it's not like it's not useful but it's limited in terms of transforming or uprooting our habits of setting emotion suffering and i'm guessing maybe the ones who giggled a few moments ago that we recognize that because it's surprising when we really get how non-attachment is the way. I mean, we really get it. Oh yeah, I really get non-attachment is the way. Does anybody not get that that's the way? <laughs> but can we stop ourselves from being attached? No, because we've got this, you know, at least in moments, we have that keenness, that sharpness that really understands on a certain level, right view, but it doesn't have the umph of samadhi where it's been integrated in a deeper way because of the stability, the clarity, the purity of the mind. That's another word actually for samadhi. It's the mind is purified of the defilements, purified of the agitation that comes with greed and distractedness and aversion. So it's a nice just way to check on your practice too, you know. Is there a honed and heavy axe happening? Well, okay, there's some, you know, there's some samadhi, but not right view. Or there's right view, but no samadhi. And then that can really help us sense, like, what to emphasize in terms of the ongoing training. Well, maybe I'll use a primary object for a while to help stabilize. So maybe you're in the middle of walking practice and you realize that seems like not enough stability of mind, not enough samadhi. So I'm going to rally some energy to be interested in the next foot making contact and the next lifting, and to really be wholehearted. There's something really, even though it's subtle, there's something pleasing about when we're doing the more directed and of practice where we're directing the attention to an object of awareness. There's something pleasant. It doesn't mean it's easy, but because the mind has to put down all of its other preoccupations. Now, it doesn't want to, but it feels good. This is what I meant about, you know, again, from a hypothetical point of view, having seen people like one of my best friends who's, I think he's 44. Five. they just had their first child and she's maybe 39 and they're they're in a total state of samadhi I mean they're just like their whole life they've disconnected from everything they used to be quite involved in the center now they're just like their practice is at home with this infant and you know doing uh, their, their job their jobs but uh, yeah just that putting down the other preoccupations with life. So this is how we reignite our practice when we've been sort of wandering in a haze for a while, not really doing anything that in hindsight looks productive, setting something wholesome in motion. Then the one thing we can do is we can come back to the present moment by any means, So even if it means we have to direct the attention, you know, oh no, no, I'm somebody who only does open attention practice. Choiceless awareness, I can't direct my attention. See, then you're caught in a view, right? Or, you know, somebody who thinks I can't do open attention, I can only direct. So we want to be fluent along the spectrum. And when directing the attention back and putting the foot down and being there or being there for the next breathing in and feeling the air touching the nostrils or feeling the abdomen expanding, rising with the in-breath. And to notice that very subtle, simple joy of putting the rest of the world down. By showing up to this, by connecting and then sustaining with this, we're putting everything down and it feels good to realize we can put it down. There's something deeply, because it takes wisdom to put it down. So this is why it's really this controversy that I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, oh no, I do just wisdom practice, I don't do samadhi practice, I don't do another word that's used in the tradition is samatha practice, a practice that's aimed at calming the mind. Oh, I don't do that. But somebody who understands the teachings of the Buddha says, yeah, I do both, (laughs) right? You need this dance between samadhi and wisdom. Samadhi is the proximate cause for the deepening of insight. The only thing that keeps the mind from understanding the way things are is the absence of the stability of mind, right? Because the Buddha is, in, in one of the discourses, talks about when, when there is samadhi, the mind inclines towards nibbana, towards insight and nibbana, liberation, in the same way that the Ganges River inclines towards the ocean. You're not going to stop it. Its nature is to move in that direction. The nature of the mind with samadhi is to see things as they are. And that's so good because it's so frustrating to try to see the insights we read about and hear about just through force of will (laughs) or by thinking about them. (laughs) But then we get some samadhi and all of a sudden the changing nature of reality just becomes obvious. And the unsatisfactory nature, the you know, that when the mind tries to Grass tries to own, personalize, it always hurts. The ego, the self can't find ground in this changing world. So in that sense, it's unsatisfactory and it's impersonal. And these things just become apparent. Like I mentioned, you know, in these simple moments where the mind just comes into balance, So sometimes samadhi arises because we've followed a formula that works for our mind, we've trained it, and we're getting the natural fruit of that training. But other times the mind just comes into balance, the balance of samadhi on its own. It's just the conditions are there. Often it's when, I mentioned this earlier, when things are pleasant, like we're already feeling, you know, not afflicted by anything, Strongly unpleasant. And then all of a sudden, there's just... it was the, the wind was still, but all of a sudden, a nice breeze blows. And the combination of sound and the filtered light flickering and the sensations against the skin, right? The mind was ripe, and now with that new change of the wind, with the wind coming in, the mind gathers itself, unifies in knowing the sound and the sensations, right? It doesn't have to be just one. It could be awareness of all of that arising together. And the clarity is there. And then in that moment, it's like you might notice how impersonal, how beautiful and impersonal it all is. In fact, the beauty is related to the fact that whatever the mind is understanding can't be grasped, that it's ephemeral. It's just a momentary arising. It can't be grasped, and it's not personal at all. But still, it's, it's very insightful. It, it shifts. It's like a little seismic shift to the mind because all of the more neurotic pursuits for happiness get undermined because that moment was authentically healing and liberating and it just arose on its own i didn't have to go shopping i didn't you know need to win an award or have somebody praise me and one of the sort of flavors of those simple moments of Samadhi, that unified mind, seeing things as they are, is this, uh, it's like a shift in allegiance from me, from this egoic point of view, trying so hard to line things up so I can be happy. And that's so frustrating to get everybody to act the way that I want them to act and to get my body to be the way that I need it to be, want it to be, It's just endlessly frustrating. And then to have a moment like that where the aftertaste is, it's okay. It's all okay. Without me doing anything, it's all okay. You see, it really shifts how the mind understands freedom or happiness or liberation from something that somebody... (laughs) pursues and then holds on to. And we can turn our practice into this too. You know, and samadhi is one of the places where we get in this striving, achievement, uh, fixation. Like, God, if I could only get samadhi, then I'd be happy. And to remember that samadhi arises not because somebody wants it to arise. Why? What are the causes? What are the proximate causes for samadhi? What are the proximate causes for samadhi, for that unification of mind? You might be surprised. But there's, often it is a kind of inner pleasantness or happiness that can gather, with that uh, supports the natural gathering of the mind. And we can f- uh, find that with faith or confidence, like sitting down, even though our body might be achy, but just the uh, gratitude or just feeling part of the community. This is actually an underused technique as you're like in a formal walking or formal sitting, to take some moments to look at the attitude of the mind because when we bring in wholesome attitude like compassion or kindness, joy, gratitude, appreciation, the willingness to let go or a generous heart, it's like the, the happiness, the pleasantness of those wholesome attitudes the mind just begins to settle before we pull out our meditation technique. It's already settling. And you'll look, and and hopefully because of the talk, you'll just pay attention during the retreat, and you'll notice, you just get interested in the art and science of when and how the mind gathers and collects. And just as important, what disturbs that collectedness, that unification of mind. It's so interesting, you know, when we have it and then maybe we get a little greedy. Oh, this this is great. I'm going to be this way for the rest of the retreat. (laughs) (laughs) And so the seeds, we've just sown the seeds for the dissolution of that collectedness of mind. But we learn a little each time. And whatever has the nature to come together, does have the nature to fall apart. But the more we understand samadhi and the more that our samadhi is coming, arising out of of view, a wisdom that's not confused and not disturbed by feeling, by the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, then that kind of samadhi can be um, more resilient even when you leave the retreat in a few days. Maybe I'll just end by reading a few words from Saito Utejaniya. This is in another one of his books and uh, Kamala and I will put out a website where you can download his books. They're all freely available, um, the digital Version is freely available. This is one of his earlier books. Um, awareness alone is not enough. <clears throat> In order to develop vipassana samadhi, so the unification of mind that allows the mind to see things as they are. Vipassana means having insight or seeing things as they are. In order to, de- to develop vipassana samadhi, we need to have the right attitude and continuity of awareness. Without right attitude, we cannot have samadhi and the mind always feels some agitation. Having a wrong attitude means that there is some liking or disliking in the mind and that destabilizes the mind. Samadhi means having a stable mind. Right effort does not mean putting in energy, but practicing with patience and perseverance. Vipassana is a practice you need to keep doing for the rest of your life. You cannot stop and rest. If, however, you use a lot of energy, you will not be able to keep practicing all the time. You need to keep in mind that this is a long-term practice, which needs to be done steadily. Just do as much as you can, but do it steadily. If we use too much effort, we cannot sustain this kind of practice. And though we go on retreat again and again for many years, we will not gain any insight at all. When we do any kind of work over a long period of time, we will learn many things about that field of work. But when we engage in the same kind of work only occasionally for short periods of time, we will never gain a high level of proficiency. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. allowing the mind to gather here in the present moment.